Hey, Sanctus Church, it is so great to be with you always. It is awesome to worship God by learning His Word. Like, I don't know why Pastor John asked me to talk about this particular topic, but I can take a few guesses. We're talking about food, we're talking about Jesus and meals in this series, and Pastor John knows that I am a foodie. It is no secret to the world that I take pictures, tons of pictures on my phone, on Instagram. I make food. I go out to a restaurant, take a picture of whatever I'm eating or drinking and post that picture. Maybe he was thinking, ah, she comes from a Lebanese background. I know that that culture loves food. Like, we really over-the-top love food. If you come to my house for dinner, there is no like island where the food is placed or an extra table that is illegal in our home. Like on the table when my mom cooks a Middle Eastern dinner, there is no space for not even the cutlery. Everybody's squished in, the food is there. From an aerial viewpoint, it, it looks like art. It really does, the colors and the vibrancy, but it is a ton of food. It's another love language to show how much we care for the people that are around that table. Or maybe John was like, ah, she married a Latino. And you know, it's always a fiesta with the frijoles y arroz y una barbacoa y la carne y todo eso. And maybe he was like, you know, if it sounds like a fiesta, it's a fiesta. Maybe that's where he's like, oh, she'll, she'll know what she's talking about when we talk about meals. You know, this is not foreign to all of us. We live in this foodie culture. Any one of us can put up, pull up our phones. It would be surprising if you didn't have a picture of food or were drawn to, to take some pictures of your meals. There's even something called food pornography, where people take pictures, post their pictures about food, total social media accounts just dedicated to pictures of food. One time I was on a date with my husband and the waitress saw that I was taking a picture of food and she, of our plate. It was such a cool presentation of tacos that I was like, okay, we gotta take a picture of this. She comes to us and she goes, hey, like I can take a picture of you guys. And we both kind of looked at her like, are you, are you, we don't want a picture, but are you crazy? Like, I just want to take a picture of the food. It's crazy. We got shows about food. We got festivals about food. We got shows about making food. And then we watch people eat food. Like confession, I have been in front of my TV eating a bowl of cereal, watching a show about delicious barbecue. Like this is insane. I'm not the only one. I know that people do this. Our chefs in this culture are celebrities. They have shows like Nailed It and Chopped and Master Chefs. I mean, we're a culture obsessed with food. We laugh about being hangry. We idolize food so much. We sing songs about it. My teenagers are singing like smooth like butter. Like they're singing all these different songs about food. It's hilarious. We even fantasize about binge eating on the weekends or on holidays. There's swag. You get the point. Wakey, wakey, eggs and bakey. There's all this stuff, even to the point where these comfort foods, scientifically, if we roll or having a stressful day, we roll up into the Starbucks lineup and it's like, oh, okay, I'm going to order that cinnamon dolce latte. There's actually neurons that get set off in our brain that go, oh, you're going to be okay, girl. You're going to be okay. Okay. Maybe this is a West Coast thing. And on the East, y'all like Tim Hortons and you're just like, I roll up into the Tim Hortons and I get my double double and the day is going to be great. This is insane how much we care about food. So get this. God cares about our holistic self, 
all of us. He cares about our finances. He cares about our work life. He cares about our marriages and our families. He cares about what gives us pleasure. He cares about our relationship with food. And that's what we're gonna dive into today. We're not just spending a Sunday, we're spending a series of Sundays talking about Jesus at the table, having meals with people. It's not because John wants us all to start eating healthy and keto and going to Orange Theory. It's way deeper than that. Something happens when we're sitting at the table. Something transformative happens with Jesus when he's sitting at the table with people. Time and time again, deep, life-changing stuff happens. And so what if today God wanted to reveal to us that the creation of food actually has a massive impact on our relationship with him and a relationship with others? So we're gonna do a short study. We're actually gonna dive a little bit. You know, I wanna go deep, but we are gonna just scratch the surface on this topic about food in the Bible, how God created food, and particularly how all of it relates to the Last Supper. But you gotta track with me so that you can understand and so both of us can understand and be students right now that there's a greater significance in this very familiar story of the Last Supper. So my hope is that by the end of this time together, you and I will be more in awe of the Lord, will love sharing Him with others, and preferably around a meal. So get your snacks, get your drinks, your notebooks, your Bible, and we're gonna dive in. Let's pray. Father God, I am so grateful that we have access to your word. Your mysteries lie in this word. These scriptures have so much richness. And I pray that as we dive into these passages today, as we study your scriptures, would you empower us? Would you reveal to us your secrets? Would you reveal to us your mysteries? Unveil these mysteries to us. Something that seems so insignificant, food and meals, has such great significance before you and your kingdom work. And so I pray, Lord God, that our, the eyes of our hearts would be open today. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, we're going to start at the very beginning. In Genesis, at the very beginning, the idea of Genesis was to actually have God dwelling with his people. He was there, he was pausing, he was, people were in, enjoying him in creation. And I want us to look, as we're going through this Old Testament, if you're taking notes, point number one is that food embodies evidence of God. It's either a blessing or a curse. So let me unpack this a little bit. In Genesis 1 and 2, he talks about tending the garden. Uh, being fruitful and eating. And then I noticed a pattern. And it was that God gives us blessing and then provision through food. And then there's a response, either sin or no sin. And that would conduct a, a blessing or a curse. So the blessing in Genesis was that here's the garden. There's multiplication happening in the garden. God is providing food. Food has been an evidence of God's provision. He provides the herbs to eat. He said, you know, I'm going to sustain you. I'm going to be present with you. I'm going to provide for your needs, Adam and Eve. I'm going to take care of you. I'm going to dwell with you. And then there was a response. And sin happened. There was disobedience, as we read in Genesis 3. And I'm not going to unpack every single scripture, so you got to go back and do your homework. Uh, and sin led the heart astray. The appetite, actually, that sin, if we just sit and think about this, began with food. That appetite 
drew her away from the promise, from the blessing of God. Humanity's desire and appetite pulled us away from God. This is all of us, right? And be like, hey, Eve, that's all your fault. No, and Isaiah, um, it was 53. 53 verse 6 says that all of us have gone astray. All of our hearts have, have turned away to our own ways. But this pattern of blessing, provision, and the response of sin or no sin continues throughout the Old Testament. So I'm just going to give you a few examples because it is packed. Esau in Genesis 25, he gets the blessing of the firstborn. Then there's provision. He gets this inheritance. And his sin was that he traded out God's promise for a bowl of lentils. When I was reading through this and sharing this with my daughter, my daughter's like, Mom, I don't even like lentils. What is happening here? This is, this guy, what is going on? He couldn't wait to eat. And I was like, oh my gosh, he was going to eat. He was going to have a meal. He just this could be a word for somebody today. He was just wanted to hurry up. He just wanted that quickly in his own timing. He wasn't willing to be patient. His impatience caused him to trade out God's blessing for curse. He actually replaced his blessing of an inheritance. This is wild. Maybe there's something in our life where we sell out God for something that is a distraction. It makes us lose our focus. And it could be as simple as the bowl of lentils, but maybe we got to do a little bit of a self-reflection, go, what is it that's swaying my appetite away from God? In Genesis 42, Joseph gets revealed this blessing of being a leader in his dream. And God's provision here looks a little bit different because we want God to provide and things looking like happy and joyful and wonderful, but perhaps, and it is God's provision, his sovereignty to take him out of a comfortable situation, put him in an uncomfortable place in Egypt. This is a preach all by itself. And this is for somebody today too. Look, God may be doing something in, in our lives, like in Joseph's, and repositioning us into something that is uncomfortable, but it's his provision. So there was the blessing, there was provision, and he did not sin. He remained faithful to the Lord, but his siblings did. And they experienced famine while Joseph experienced plenty. Eventually, God restores this relationship and there's a blessing to this entire family by providing food. Do you see how important food is in the Old Testament for this people, for this culture, God created food for enjoyment, yes, for nourishment, yes, but all of it points back to him, to his goodness, to his kindness, to his provision. And time and time again, God is showing up by providing food for his followers. And it continues. I give you one more, Moses. I mean, the whole story of the exodus of the people of Israel, there's sweet waters, there's quails, there's manna, bread falling from heaven. Like it is the promise is I'm going to take the blessing is I'm going to take you, my people, out into a land of milk and honey. That's the promise. I'm going to give like literally you are going to have food to eat. And figuratively, that milk and honey statement, nobody ever stops to think this was actually like goat's milk, like this like smelly stuff here. But it is this metaphor of I'm going to give you plenty. I'm going to give, provide for everything that you need because you're my people. And so his provision was I'm going to take you out of slavery. But the people sinned. 
They craved onions, they craved garlic, they craved all their, the, the, the things that they wanted to eat. They doubted God's provision, but he would continue to provide food over and over and over again. Then we get to this really interesting passage because Moses' faithfulness and his sinless life allow God to continue providing and providing for his people in this way. But we get to Numbers 20. And uh, God gives Moses and Aaron a, a directive to go and speak to the rock. They've done this before. The first time they did that, they had tapped the rock and water came out and there was provision for the people. The second time, he's like, speak to the rock and the water will come out. My people will have, have water. And so they go and rather than speaking to it, they tap the rock and water comes out. God provides because he is God and he is showing the people of Israel, I am with you. I am with you. I'm going to continue providing for you. But then he says this interesting thing and he calls Moses and Aaron back and he says, come on over here, guys. I need to talk to you guys. And he summoned them and he says, listen, because you did not trust me to demonstrate holiness in the sight of the Israelites, you will not bring this assembly into this promised land, into the land that I have given them. It was Again, based on this, this food, this food, the waters, Meribah, where the Israelites, they, they argued with the Lord, but he continued to demonstrate his holiness to them. As a result of Moses and Aaron's response, their sin, their disobedience, they did not enter that promised land. That's, this is insane. This is how much God cares. This food is evidence of God's provision, not only in the Old Testament, but in the New Testament as well, because we see the very first miracle that Jesus did in the New Testament in John chapter two. It's a sign in Cana, we know it, of Galilee at this wedding, he displayed, revealed his glory and his disciples believed in him when he turned the water to wine. It was understood in that culture. It was that there is a miraculous encounter with God through the provision of sustenance. It's totally wild to reflect that point too, food allows humanity to experience God. This may be a little bit difficult for us to grasp culturally. It's harder for us to compute the cultural and spiritual relevance of feasting and fasting because this was so embedded in this uh, culture in scripture. Whereas today, when we look at our relationship with food, there's like gluttony, there's this overeating and binging and unhealthiness. And then there's the other extreme of eating disorders. And it, it's this, this tandem, this tension that we live in around food. It's an unhealthy relationship. Whereas in these times, in these, these scriptural times, there's team, times of feasting and times of fasting, and it was of utmost significance. So feasts are instituted to remember God, remember who he is, dine with him. All throughout Numbers, you get the Feast of Weeks, the Feast of Pentecost, the Feast of Trumpets, the Feast of, of the Jubilee, Tabernacles is like their big Thanksgiving. All of these moments around the table were for the people to remember God as deliverer, as provider, as faithfulness, to stop, take time, prepare that beautifully cooked meal. It's not like the microwave meal or the drive-through meal. It's the slow cooked kind of meal that takes time to prepare, days to prepare in anticipation, in celebration, to celebrate the deliverer and the provider of all. On the flip side, 
Fasting was a common practice, again, to remember God, to spend time with him, to deny food in order to have a focused time with God, this intentional time that would be accompanied by, by prayer and discipline and practices. And so even when we see Jesus fasting in the desert and Satan trying to tempt him, the first attempt was like the first attempt on Eve. It was through food. He's like, here, take these stones and turn them to bread. It's like He's going to the, to the brain, but it's not this. It's like the stomach is wild. So the blessing here, here's the pattern again. Jesus is sent as the Savior. It's the beginning of his ministry. The provision is that he's overcome Satan. When he tried to tempt him, what did he say? It was this weapon. His response was using the word as his weapon, saying, man does not live off of bread alone, but in every word that comes out of the mouth of God. See, both those experiences, the feasting and the fasting, drew people closer to experience God. Why? There are so many metaphors in the Bible around food. There's your point three. In Old Testament and New Testament, you get this bread of life and living water. And all of this is like rising action to the climactic experience in the Last Supper. So we're getting there. Did you ever wonder why? There's like so many, from, uh, from front to, to, to back, metaphor after metaphor. It's like setting up a scene of like this relevance of food that is of utmost importance. It's like the plot is thickening and thickening and thickening. And Jesus describes himself as the true bread of life in John chapter six, and then the living water in John chapter four the one that will satisfy the soul forever. All of that would have massive implications for the people living at that time. When he's like, anyone who's thirsty, come and drink from me. I'm gonna give you from the well of eternal life. I'm gonna, I'm gonna spring up in you eternal life. What? I'm going to satisfy you. Whoever believes in me, streams of living waters will flow from you. Like, this is, this is incredible. Jesus speaks these words when you go back and read them at particular moments in time where feasting was happening. When he spoke those words of the Feast of the Tabernacle, it's like he's pointing to that, that completion of that feast in his own life. And so the Father designs this beautiful plan where the Son comes, he sends his son to die because all humans went astray and our appetites led us away from God. And so his son comes to defeat Satan's sin and death so that we can have victory over this life and full satisfaction in him, amen? And then the pro this plot thickens and God whispers through the bread. As Margaret Feinberg writes in her book, Taste and See, it's not the only time that Jesus describes himself as bread. And in the Last Supper, if you turn with me to Luke 22, this whole passage, um, I'm not going to go verse by verse, although I'm so, so tempted to. It begins with talking about the Feast of Unleavened Bread, which is Passover. But what is Passover? What happened? It's to remind us, because we are foreigners of that culture, it's like we're studying a different culture, a different moment in history, a different story that we did not experience. But the Passover was this time to remember that the people of Israel were taken out of a brutal situation. They were freed from slavery by an incredibly uh, powerful situation where Moses tells the people of Israel, go take the blood of the lamb, put it on your doorposts, and when the spirit of death comes, it's gonna pass 
over your house. You're going to be safe because you're in that space. And when it passes over, it's actually, this is the final plague. They had seen every, they had seen bugs come and, and destroy crops. They had seen boils on people. They had seen uh, rivers turn into blood. They'd seen like this, like a nasty horror movie or something kind of like stranger things, like something totally crazy that was happening in their time, but right in front of their eyeballs. And here he's going, okay, you're going to do this act of faith and we are going to be redeemed and you are gonna see God as your redeemer through this. So Passover is incredibly important in this story. And in this same scene in, in Luke 22, where it's opened up and it says here, this is what's happening in the city. The city is celebrating Passover. It's like the camera pans in on this small group of people and they're called the chief priests and they're sitting there and they're planning all together. And they're probably whispering because they don't want anybody else to hear that they are plotting how to end Jesus's ministry, how to end his life, how to take him out. And probably if I imagine it like a movie, the camera pans out again and then pans it to, the, to this one person who's probably in a back alley somewhere. And it says, Satan entered Judas. And in that moment, he goes to that group of chief priests and then they start to talk about, there's an exchange of money, there's a deal that's been made. And they're talking about how do we plot the end here? The same camera pans out and you see a duet, a couple of friends, Peter and John, they're sent out to go prepare a space because Jesus and his buddies, they're gonna go and celebrate Passover. And they're gonna celebrate this beautiful time by setting up a dinner. And they go and they're like, wow, everything that Jesus said is actually gonna, it's actually happened. Everything's set up for us. Let's have dinner together. When we get to verse 14, we have that dinner scene where Jesus is just like hanging out. He's reclining at the table, hanging out with his buddies, knowing, he says, that he would suffer. It's beautiful. I want us to read that verse. I'll read it from the amplified version. It's verse 14 and 15. When Jesus arrived at the upper room, he took his place at the table along with the disciples. He was reclining and he told them, I have longed with passion and desire to eat this Passover lamb with you before I endure my sufferings. Verse 16, I promise you that the next time we eat this, we'll be together in the banquet of God's kingdom realm. Oh, powerful. He was gonna, he's having a meal with his friends, knowing that it's messy, it's disappointing. They, they are going to leave him, they're gonna run away. This, this is hurtful, it's vulnerable. He knows that everyone there is gonna betray him in some form, but he wanted to be near and he wanted to share that moment together. He knew that the significance of Passover would be celebrated as the Last Supper, as we all do today, by celebrating communion for generations and generations and generations. We would sing songs about it. We would write poems about it. There would be artwork made about it. We would share in communion and do that particular thing. We would try to replicate it in remembrance of him. And so then he took the bread and he gave thanks and he broke it and he gave it to them and he said, this is my body which is given for you. Do this in memory of me or in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup after supper and he said, this is the cup of my new covenant. And he took the cup of my new covenant in my blood which is poured out for you. Like when we imagine the scene, we imagine it as this loaf of bread. 
right? It's kind of like the COVID so sourdough loaf that everybody was making. This is what we imagined. And we imagined it being parted or maybe being passed around and that this bread was being broken. But actually, this is like a very North American Western thought. This would not have been the bread that would have been presented. It is more like your, your chapati roti pita matzo. <laughs> the closest thing we have is a matzo bread. And it would have been something like this, where he would have taken it and he would have, this is like a supplement on, on, my, on our table, this is like a, this is something that's a staple on a Middle Eastern table. He would have broken the bread. He would have taken, and this is what people do, families do this. You'll see it with, with children and their parents. You'll see it with friends. They'll break their bread. It's a very intimate experience. And he would have said, here, this is for you, here. This is for you. He would have shared this part. My body's gonna be split for you. My, my body's gonna be shared for you. My body's gonna be broken for you. And he would have shared the bread. I mean, this is powerful stuff. This is so crazy because he's like, I am going to be your sustenance. You're gonna to turn to me the real bread, the real water of your life. I will not grow dry. I will always provide for you. You don't need anything else. I'm never gonna spoil or ruin or perish. I am here for you. And he's extending this bread to his friends. It's like, I'm the true meaning of your life. You're looking for all these things to fill you, but I'm right here. So I'm gonna extend myself to you. It is unreal. When you read verse 20 in the Amplified Version, it says, those you, he's looking at his buddy, you have remained and stood by me in my trials. Just as my father has granted me a kingdom, I grant you the privilege that you will eat and drink at my table. In my kingdom, you will sit on thrones judging the people of, of Israel. This is our final point. Look, the beginning and end of this word, it bookends with food. Mind blown, wow, moment. Because in the garden, Adam and Eve feasted. And then there was this restoration of a heavenly table designed by the master carpenter himself in Revelation. The ultimate heavenly experience is to dine with God. It is to actually long to feast with him. When he says, over and over again, just in the book of Revelation, to him who overcomes, I will give to eat from the tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise of God. Ultimately, I will satisfy the hunger and thirst of your soul, Revelations 21, 6. Let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who wishes to take the free gift of water of life, Revelations 22, 17. And then the ultimate longing is Revelation 19, 9. Blessed are those who are called to the marriage supper of the Lamb. In the beginning and the end of God's story, he wants to dwell with humanity. He's always been inviting his creation to come and take a seat at the table. Ah, he sings over us. He says, I love you. You're my beloved. I want to feast with you. You are overcomers who I long to just sit and be with and recline at the table with. Here in this middle ground that we call earth, he wants us to walk in freedom because the ultimate foodie experience is coming. So when we celebrate the Last Supper, when we celebrate communion, it's like those neurons in our head when we go through the Tim Hortons lineup. It's like he wants those neurons to go off and go, listen, kid, I got you. I got you. You're safe with me. I'm going to provide for you. Just breathe. Breathe and remember me. Remember that there's power in my name. 
So here's a question for us to, to reflect on. Because I pray that we are more in awe of God, more in awe of the, the way he's created food for us, and that we would love him more and possibly even like share him with others around the meal. But this is the question I want to leave us with. How will you make today matter around your table? Who will you invite to share your life with? Who will you invite to dine with, to feast with? Because see, God showed up again, and he gave the blessing of his son, and he showed up by providing the ultimate food, Jesus himself as bread and water, who gave his life for us, who died on that cross for us. And now we get to respond. Sin or no sin, we get to respond. Lord, do I, I want to dine with you. I want to feast with you. And so let's pray as we wrap up today and reflect on these words. God, I thank you so much that you are the ultimate bread of life, Jesus. You are the ultimate satisfaction of our soul. Nothing else will compare. Nothing. And so I pray that as we do in remembrance of you, as we dine and feast with you, as we remember the sacrifice that you have made for us, as, you, as we remember that moment, that, that, that uncomfortable moment where you were sitting at the table with your buddies knowing that they were all going to betray you, that you remained faithful because you were thinking about us. You were thinking about way further than that particular moment. You were thinking about our eternity. You are thinking about communion with us, relationship with us. And so I pray, God, that as we enter into relationship with other people, would we use our table as a, as a meeting space with you, with others? Would we use those moments around the table to glorify your name, Jesus? Amen.